Welcome back to the Wardens of Westeros podcast. I am Bauer, and joining me today is Matt. Hello, everybody. How you doing out there? Hope you're doing well. I think they're doing okay. It's been quite a couple of episodes already. Yeah, everybody's doing okay except for Rick and Stark, I suppose. <laughs> that guy needs a haircut. He should take after his older brother. He does. Uh, before we so go any dr- further, dr- today's sponsor for the episode is the Westeros Chicken Company, the official protein of the Hound. Uh, you know, we always appreciate them uh, sending us their support. Absolutely. Those guys are great. They've got a lot of good things going for them, and I know the Hound appreciates it, wherever he may yeah, be. And, exactly. <laughs> and uh, I don't know if you know this, but at each one of their locations, you can take on the every freaking chicken in this room challenge and if you eat every chicken in the room you get a free (laughs) t-shirt yes it's a magnificent t-shirt by the way so drew i guess coming off of the high of last week we kind of get back and and settle down in our game of thrones rhythm as usual uh what was your overall thoughts about the episode before we get into the the breakdown overall thoughts if you're going to make me numerically rank it i'm going to give it a seven five Um, I would have normally given it a 7, but even though they gave us a tease, I really did enjoy Tower of Joy. Absolutely. uh, And I I, I like where we're going with some stuff, but I agree with you. We are back in the rhythm. We are building. Yeah. And and so kind of looking around the messaging boards and the interwebs, uh, I see a lot of people have had some serious problems with this episode in in that it it wasn't quite as uh, paced as they would like for it to be. But I just want everybody to remember out there that it's kind of like a game of Frogger. You make your one progression, and then you have to analyze your next move. So we're kind of at that analyzing phase yeah. in the season, building up towards the end, of course. Well, and I, I think so, you're on to something because, you know, we, had a, we technically had a couple of things answered last episode. Uh, yeah. With a couple deaths, you know, like we're in the next phase of those stories, which may not be the most glamorous but the show must go on. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you can't just do a full-out sprint to the end. It has to be calculated, and you have to figure out exactly where you're going to go and exactly how you're going to do it. Yeah. And, you know, that comes with some episodes that, you know, the normal people may not like, but that are really great themselves. So we start out at Castle Black, and I, I think this uh, was a, a nice little change of pace for our, the Game of Thrones lady viewers out there. <laughs> you know, they're always asking for this, so they, we had to give it to them sometime, right? Exactly. That was, that was plenty for me. So we wake up to a, or <laughs> they open up to a very confused Sir Davos and yeah. even more confused Jon Snow. A lot of heavy breathing here. <laughs> the breathing intensifies. Yes, it does. And so what was your first take on this kind of opening up scene? Okay, so you definitely kind of get into John's mindset a little bit. Obviously, none of us have really been stabbed and brought back to life. But as much as you can relate, he, uh, you know, he is confused. I'm going to borrow your word. He's confused, but he's also, I think he's in disbelief. Uh, and I know I just made fun of it, but I really think that's why they encouraged him to breathe like he did. He's, he's doing it more because he doesn't think it's real. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I don't know if it, I don't know if any of our uh listeners out there have watched the uh behind the scenes. It's on HBO. You you can watch it on HBO Go. 
And Dan and Dave actually initially said that there was more dialogue in this scene. And when they went back and looked at it and kind of analyzed it, they realized that, you know, once you wake up from being dead, you're not wanting to have these extra long conversations about it. You know, you, you don't just wake up and instantly realize you're back. Sure. So I, I thought they handled this scene very well. It was magnificent, I thought. One more thing I will add is I thought that John was really weighing... I know Melisandre asks him, like, what he saw, and he says nothing, or, you know, what he felt, what he saw, and then Davos is like, you need to get out of here. Even though, to Melisandre's yeah. credit, she just brought this dude back. Uh, exactly. But, you know, Davos is always thinking ahead. But my point is, I think John, in more so than just analyzing it, he, he realized he was actually similar to the person he was before, you know what I mean? But he's got a new yeah. outlook. I know everybody's so concerned about, you know, when people come back, the character's different, and is John going to be different? Yes, he will technically be different, but I don't think it's a bad thing. Yeah, well, so, so first off, I'll say I also really liked Davos kicking Mel out of the room. And, you know, he sits down and he says, you know, this seems totally screwed to me and I can't imagine what it seems like for you and then they show John kind of you know analyzing his stab wounds and realizing well you know I was actually dead like this is very real yeah to me and I thought one of the, the memorable lines that stuck out to me was is that I, I thought I did what was right and they murdered me and I, I was laughing at Kate I just kind of laughed because you know, he actually did get murdered. Like, you know, when we think about it right now, it's, oh, my parents are going to kill me. Well, could you imagine doing something and then they actually kill you? Yeah. And you know that they're going to, yeah. So. Oh, I mean, it was completely mad. But he, one, he's coming to terms with that. He's coming to terms with that he's back. But to further your discussion about memorable lines was that Davos is like, and you're going to go ahead and try to screw it up again, so to speak. Yeah. You know, like, keep exactly. on fighting the good fight. Mm-hmm. And, and one important part about this also, they mentioned uh, the prince that was promised. Yes. And Mel, Melisandre, initially thought that it was Stannis. That's why mm -hmm. at the beginning of season two, they had all of this building up to him potentially being Azor High and having the flaming sword. But... It turns out, obviously, that that was wrong. And Melisandre is known for seeing the future but misinterpreting what it means. Correct. She hadn't and quite figured she, that out. So, so she's seeing now that, oh, well, when she initially thought she had failed when Stannis was killed, mm -hmm. now she says, oh, well, maybe I was wrong to think it was him in the first place and John is actually the prince that was promised. Yeah, so you're right. She's trying to reinterpret her misinterpretation. Uh, the best comparison I have for her is that she is one aspect of the three witches from Hocus Pocus. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and, and she hasn't quite gotten it all together yet. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And so then they, uh, John you know, gets dressed and kind of somewhat gets his bearings about him and walks outside. And we get this really good little uh, scene with him in Tormund. So I obviously there's a line in there that was really funny. Um 
But yeah, so it, sorry, ladies. I, I guess it's uh, you know, not everything can be <laughs> rainbows and pots of gold. <laughs> but I thought this was one of the actually the biggest moments in the episode. Think about how far John and the relationship between the wildlings and John and the wildlings and men, you know, like the men of Westeros, they have yeah. come so far. And this, that interaction summed it up for me as to where they are right now. Yeah. Well, my thing is, is that if you're, you know, looking at it from the wildlings perspective, they really do owe their lives to John. Had it been anybody else who was Lord Commander at the time, including, you know, Lord Commander Mormont, they would be dead right now. Yep. And I think they realize that. And Tormund is obviously a very powerful character, a very powerful person. Mm-hmm. And you can even see his respect for John. Yeah, and I, I think it speaks volumes, and you're, you're exactly correct that they would be nowhere uh, if it wasn't for John's mercy. Uh, I, I think that's one of the best words to use in this situation because he went against everything that he's supposed to believe about who they are and what they stand for. Uh, but yeah, you know, as he walks out, you know, the next person he sees is Ed. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I really like that, you know, he like focused in on him and went straight for him next, even though it's obviously planned that way. Yeah, it's obviously scripted that way, but it, it shows that he has been kind of a, a steady person in John's life throughout all of this, and he's really his last true friend now that he has, that he started out with. Uh, yeah. I think we talked about that in the, in the episode one recap and how Grin was killed whenever they were initially fighting the wildlings. Yeah. And you know, th- th- that's kind of the, the last little bit of John when he first got here, now that Sam is away and heading to the Citadel. Yeah, Sam's on the away team, on the boat. Exactly. <laughs> and so, so I guess it's a good segue now onto, on because in the chronology of the episode, it opens up with uh, Gilly's face in the ship window. Yeah. And uh, I don't know if you noticed this, but uh, Gilly must have gone to the dentist yeah. between her time leaving Castle Black and getting on the ship. <laughs> I, I'm a teeth guy, so I, I noticed I, that kind of stuff. Uh, I did not, I did not notice, and so I appreciate you pointing that out, but I'm assuming she has some sort of veneers now? I guess. Or I mean, it's her it real really teeth? Opens up with, it opens up with her face in the window, and her mm-hmm. mouth covers up like 75% of the window. That's all I could see. <laughs> and so, one of the things that I was thinking of whenever I was watching this is, I am really glad they weren't in the first two episodes because I really don't care what they have going on. And I know a lot of people like this kind of quirky love story and how mm-hmm. Gilly's the masculine figure and all this. But I just, I can't get behind it. It's boring. It bores me. Yeah, so it's funny you should say, I thought the scene itself was fine as a standalone scene. Um, I thought it was a little longer than I, than I would have anticipated them to do this for. You know, Sam always yeah. has that problem with telling people bad news, but he tells them at probably one of the worst times. Like, you're, it's storming at sea, you're puking in a barrel, and you tell this person, 
that thought they were going with you that actually you've got to go stay with my parents and I'm not really quite sure how they're going to take it. Exactly. And so obviously we know that we're going to see the Tarly family. Uh, we talked about that actually in our preseason episodes. So we've been right on the money throughout all of this. Yes. But, but we know that Randall is very, you know, he's a, a war-hardened veteran who is very strict, kind of like a Tywin Lannister on emotional steroids. Yeah, I, I would agree. Say. Yeah, I would agree. He has that. And, he has that kind of same like family stance, you know, like the good son do, should do X and the other ones should do mm-hmm. Y. Exactly. And I don't know if our listeners will recall, but in season one, Randall literally told Sam that you're either going to go to the Night's Watch, or we're going to go hunting, and I'm going to kill you, and you're not going to come back. Yeah, I mean, bold move, Randall. Yeah, which, but, but looking at Sam, not saying this is justified, but, you know, he's obviously not the person that his dad wants him to be. Not saying he's not successful. Yeah. Do you think, I'll ask it, you, do you think him becoming a maester helps him at all with his dad? In, in, with his dad? Potentially. I, I think that it, it's a very respectable position, but at this point... I don't think Sam really cares what his dad has to say. I mean, you even hear in this little exchange between him and uh, uh, Gilly, he's like, well, my, my dad's just my dad. Oh, but my mom's a lovely lady, and my sister will probably get along with you. So yeah. he knows what his dad is, and I think it comes to a point where he's not going to be able to please him. He's never going to be the son that his dad wants him to be. So he has to be what he wants to be. Yeah, no, I agree. I wonder if Sam's fancy brother is going to try to get in on some of that action. It wouldn't surprise me. <laughs> and, and I'll say one thing about this whole Sam and Gilly deal is that she always constantly says, oh, well, wherever you go, I go. And this has been a common theme since they've mm-hmm. been put together. And all I equate this to is, like in the action movies, whenever you know, the, the main character, who's a guy, is you know, shooting at the bad guys and tells his girl to stay right here and don't do anything stupid. Mm-hmm. And then she inevitably goes and does something stupid. Yeah, and I, I got to interrupt it, it, you for a second. This is Shia LaBeouf and Megan Fox in Transformers. Exactly. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly <laughs> like that, where it's like, you know, just at some point it says, you know, use your head a little bit and not your heart. Not saying, and, and I don't want to get any uh, backlash from our, our female listeners out there, but it, it's just kind of this wherever you go, I go type thing, and that's not always the best policy. Yeah. No, I agree. But, yeah, so we see him on the ship, rocking back and forth. Sam obviously having an uncomfortable time. But, you know, nonetheless yes. tells Gilly this is where we're going, and okay, cool. Yeah, and... So, obviously, we know that they are going to go to the Tarly family at some point. Yeah, so I'm assuming he has to drop her off first. Would make the most sense, right? Yeah, exactly. And So, uh, I'm not totally as familiar as I should be with that side of the map as far as Westeros goes. All good. What the most logical way to get there is. But I know they are going to Old Town. So I, I'm assuming that they're going to do that kind of like a, a rolling stop, and Gilly and the baby just have to jump out. 
close shore. Yeah. <laughs> Joking, obviously. <All> right. <laughs> so then, then, we, then we move on to probably the most anticipated scene in the entire, one of the most anticipated scenes in the entire series that book readers have known from 20 years ago that they've been waiting to see on screen, and it's finally here. And from what I can tell, it did not live up to a lot of expectations of some people. Matt, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear uh, you. Uh, can you hear me? Yep, can't. I can hear okay. you now. All right, hold on. Where were we can going you? with Joel? Tower of Joy. I'm just, I'm just going to start over again completely. All right. And so then we get to probably the most anticipated scene in the entire series, which is obviously the Tower of Joy. And people have waited for this from the very beginning of the series, whenever it was just books, back 20 years ago. And from what I can tell, it seems that a lot of people were very upset with how Dan and Dave portrayed this. Um, and so... Yeah. What did you think about, about their interpretation of the Tower of Joy? Okay, so once again, I'm sure we're going to get some backlash, but like books show two different things. I wish they were a little more similar, like a lot of you. I, I thought the scene was fine. Uh, hell of a battle. It probably took them forever to choreograph and produce that scene. But... Um, mm -hmm. I did not like the tease. I thought we were going to get more. Maybe not the answers to everything in the world, but I thought we were going to get a little bit more. I thought this was actually heavy. Even though the only reason we're seeing this is because of Bran, I thought it was heavy on Bran and the angst that he's still having with the Three-Eyed Raven. Um, yeah. I, know there, I know you're going to mention this, I think, about the dialogue being different and the placement yeah. of characters. Um, but I want to say one thing anecdotally, that if you know Arthur Dane is good, just bring more men. Like, yeah. why is it seven? Now, we know George is obsessed with the seven, the faith of the seven, the seven kingdoms. Ned brings six men, he's the seventh. You know, stuff like that. And so maybe it was built like that for a particular reason as well. But come on already. Like, bring more people. They all got sliced, and uh, Hal and Reed's lucky to be alive. Yeah, well, I mean, he actually did get sliced. Yeah. He was just the first one to, and they kind of forgot about him, which was convenient. And so a, a big thing about the animosity that the book readers have is, one, that they changed the dialogue, and it, it turned into, in the books, it's, Ned talking to Arthur Dane and uh, Gerald Hightower is there too who wasn't in the show. Correct. And they're having this dialogue but it's, it's in these very like short and, and harsh sentences where they're like uh, I look for you at the Battle of the Trident well we weren't there and, and so it's kind of like two guys flexing verbally which is awesome because they're two great swordsmen mm -hmm. and so people were kind of upset with Ned's asking, well, where's my sister? It's, it, 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 he's sitting there looking in the middle of the desert in Dorne at this big-ass tower. 
and it's like, well, well, Ned, where do you think she is, dude? There's three guys here guarding it. Yeah. It, it's just got kind of a redundant question, and so it kind of breaks that, you know, that war with words that they had in the books. And also, in the books, it was seven versus three. Mm-hmm. And like you said, you know, George is very big on the seven, and one of the lines in the books are is that it was seven on three. And so, you know, he made that explicitly clear. And in the show, they put it as six on two. And I, I'm not really sure why they did that. And, you know, there could be some, some more stuff that's explained in the next episode. But I know people had a lot of problem with that. Now, some of the things that I liked that the show did was that Arthur Dane is dual-wielding swords, which was fantastic. I mean, that was impressive. combat. Yeah, it was for fake awesome. fighting, very impressive. Absolutely. And so, for, for those of y'all that don't know, the, the Dane family has this ancestral blade named Dawn. And it was actually forged from a meteor. And so, it, it's this very you know, noticeable individual blade. And people were really excited to see that in the show. And then Arthur Dane has two swords in the show. Yeah, but I don't know. I don't know if you notice. He kind of throws his sword in the ground. Yep, and it's it's shown as he's having this dialogue with Ned. And so I think that was their nod to the books and saying this is Dawn. Yeah, but we can't have one guy fight four people with just one sword. So, it makes no sense. Yeah, so I was okay with them adding that. I'm gonna theory craft. I actually just came up with this. If Gerald Hightower is actually there, I know I told you the other day that he may be up in the tower, which I don't know why, but maybe he is. And I also don't know a knight that ever leaves a sword behind. But, you know, Arthur, in the beginning, he brings that other sword kind of forward. Like, you know, he has one sheath and the other one's just kind of hanging out when he grabs his helmet. Uh Uh-huh. And I know they, I mean... Clearly, they wrote the entire scene with him dual-wielding, but maybe he was just that good that he could pick that, you know, he could do that anyway, but he didn't always fight that way. I don't know. Maybe I'm just yeah. trying to justify it. But uh, yeah, maybe it is actually explainable. Maybe it is not, but I'm just throwing that out there just as an aside. Well, well I will say that Dan and Dave are at a catch-22, and it's kind of being a rock and a hard place to where the book readers want it to be so pure that mm-hmm. the show to be basically just an on-screen you know rendition of the books yeah and that's not the case because you don't get to have the visuals and you can't go into a person's mind like george does in the pov chapters Mm -hmm. so you have to give all of that emotion and all that thought explicitly which you can't do there there's no perfect way to do that yeah so i'm okay with the tower of joy i give it a solid 9 out of 10. It's going to be, it is one of my favorite scenes up there with Hard Home and the Battle of Blackwater. It's going to be one of the best scenes in the series, I think. I thought it was and, great. I would, I would echo your 9 uh, or 9.5, whatever ish. Um, yeah. And I thought, it was, I thought it was well executed and I'm glad we got it now. You can see this linear progression of finding out kind of little breadcrumbs along the way. And yep. it's twofold why we have it. Um, 
you know, Dan and Dave had a strict kind of no flashback policy that they've broken three times now. Uh, yeah. But they seem to try to justify it to themselves, which I'm okay with. I think that the setup to all of the events in the show are equally as interesting as to, you know, yeah, where we are not, now. If not equally as interesting and if not more important because, you know, all it takes is one little thing to be to, – to not happen. Yeah as far as the history goes, and then we're not where we are today. And I, I was laughing to myself. So, so the whole fight overall is really plausible with the way they do it. So he has two swords. You know, he's blocking from all directions, mm-hmm. and he's constantly moving. And so I think that Dan and Dave put a lot of time into making this maybe not believable but plausible in saying that it, the, the myth isn't confirmed, but... It's plausible, you know, Mythbusters, how they do that. But yeah. I was laughing because whenever it's just Arthur Dane and the other four, he's kind of moving around. It reminds me of in a video game whenever it's, you know, you're the one person and you're fighting four guys and now you're just trying to move around and isolate one of them. <laughs> yes. So it, it was a, a really good way to do the scene if you had to do it. Oh, yeah. I mean, he was definitely strategic about it. And I think yeah. the speed and the, the sword skill... Uh, you know, helped helped him kind of you know winnow them down to one, and then you know if it wasn't for Howland Reed, we wouldn't even have a Ned Stark. Those you know in the beginning of the show. Yeah, yeah, those guys. It, it, and so the thing about Ned that we've always seen, and that even his legacy that has lived on is that everything is about honor for him, Mm -hmm. which is why everybody thinks it's so weird that he would have a bastard child in the first place. But in this scene, you can tell that Arthur Dane was significantly better. Even Bran says that. And Ned was willing to die for his honor. He wasn't going to fight dirty. Yeah, But Howard Reed had had other, other, uh, other options that he decided to take. Yeah. But I've also never known, you know, Ned is not a senseless killer. And mm-hmm. I think going there, you know, he was fulfilling his honor more so because, one, he believes, you know, he's rescuing a family member that was taken unjustly. And mm-hmm. um, and he doesn't think the Targaryens should be a thing anymore. I mean, God, he lost his brother and his father. To the Mad King. And so I think this is totally... I'm not saying it's not justified. I'm just trying to say that even Ned... See, in this scene, Ned, to me, he comes across a little more coarse. Yeah, he's younger, and they just got through fighting a pretty vicious war. But there's still some honor, you know, hidden in there. His motives are, are what I think to be just. Exactly. And the one last thing I'll say about this is that it shows you that the winners really write the history. And what, what I mean by that is, obviously, you can tell in the small things that, you know, Ned tells Bran that he beat Arthur Dane. And really, that's not how it went down. But Ned told his kids that and everyone else after that what his version of the story was. And so that has now become law essentially yeah you know i I guess i guess if if you're dead you can't say otherwise 
And th that's kind of this whole deal about Robert's rebellion and, and this animosity between Rhaegar and how he is <clears throat> viewed and how he actually may have been. Since Robert won the war and viewed Rhaegar as this kidnapper and rapist and the person who took the love of his life from him, mm -hmm. that's the way he is seen throughout all of the world now in, in the world that's created in the show. That's true. And we know that that may not have been the case because in, before Barristan Selmy dies, we know that he has a very fond memory of Rhaegar. And so it's just kind of that, you know, the, the winners rewrite history or write it the way that they want it to sound, which I thought was pretty interesting. And it's very applicable in today's world. Oh, absolutely. Totally agree. And then, obviously, we get the natural dick tease by Dan and Dave by leaving us on, on the cliffhanger. Uh, I'm like, so first, you know, they try to get you all kind of amped that, you know, Maybe in the past that Bran, you know what I mean, like he's continuous through time, that maybe he heard him, maybe he heard the wind. Um, yeah. But, you know, kind of a, you know, kind of an acknowledgement maybe that there's some other things in the world going on that none of us really quite realize. But, yeah, I mean, yep. goes up the staircase, cut. Exactly. And so... Then we move on uh, to, to Danny with the Dosh Colleen. Oh. And it's just more of Daenerys being the victim. Yep. Which she has been since day one. I know that you're and, fed and up with this story. It just aggravates the hell out of me because I, I'm going to go on the record right now and I don't know how it's going to play out. Well, I think I know how it's going to play out. I have no evidence of this. But what's going to happen is that the Dosh Kaleen are not going to let Daenerys leave, that Dario and Jorah are going to try to break her out, and they're going to get captured, and then Drogon is going to come in and fry everybody and set them free. Round two. And exa exa that's exactly what I was going to say. And mm -hmm. what does that sound like? The exact plot to season five. Yeah. You're in trouble, you know, against greater odds, and na 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 na, you get out. And it, it's kind of like, like you always say, that Dan and Dave really kind of play the watchers for a fool. And they've essentially created the same cycle for Daenerys for the past six seasons, thinking that, oh, because she's in a different place that we're not going to notice it or that we're going to be okay with all of these ups and downs, these peaks and valleys yeah. just because she has dragons or just because they're presenting it in a new way. And eventually it just gets old. Well, yeah, this is, it's the same, I say the same, it's the same type of sandy city with foreign people that don't really want her there. Exactly. <laughs> over and over and over. Now, <laughs> there's one thing I want to bring up and I don't want to be too long-winded on it, but I am trying for the life of me to figure out what the Dothraki mean in this series. I can't quite, like, place it. Because the main character, although between two and five, has spent most of her time amongst regular people in various cities... Daenerys has spent the most time with the Dothraki out of any character on screen. But I yeah. can't figure out why. Like, I know in the beginning it was for an army. 
and she leaves. And I know that they find her. They're the people that, quote, find her. But why? Like, George wrote it this way for a reason, but I am not syncing up with him on this one. Yeah, I mean, and like you said, it was for the army in season one, but that was also whenever she was married to the leader of the Dothraki. And so now, since Drogo is dead, I, I don't see them just willingly following her over to Westeros. It, no. It's kind of one of those, like, George doesn't know where he wants to go with this. And so it, it almost seems that this entire season of Daenerys is filler. And that they're trying to buy time or that George got off doing something else. Mm-hmm. And so he wrote this in. So she has content so people do not forget about her or get satisfied. Or I say satisfied, not satisfied, but occupied with what she is doing until yeah. he can figure out how to get her over to Westeros. Which he had the perfect out to do it this season now that she had finally bought ships. And then he just decided, oh, well, it'll be really fun if we burn them all and she has to start <laughs> over again. I really do think, I'm not going to get into too much of it, and we will surely talk about it as the seasons progress, but I do think with George's comments about the ending being bittersweet, I think this has something to do with it. Um, I mean, just think about it from the beginning. Daenerys, everything that we know about her, like, it's a promise of greatness, but she is still coming into her own. She's suffered many a setback. Yes, I do think she's accomplished a couple of things, but because of her, to be fair, um, she has come a long way. She made a lot of the decisions that her advisors didn't want her to make. Yes, some of them have gotten gotten her to where she is, um, but I would argue that she knows a little bit more. And think about it. She is one of the favorite favorites of the series, and for good measure, but I think that's more of a personal characteristic than actually what, like what her life stage is. Because like you pointed out, and I've said before, it is the same thing over and over and over. Like, how much sand and leather can a person take? Exactly. Exactly. And, and so, and I agree with that. And maybe that's where George is going with this, is that she's, that Danny is growing as a character, and it's, you know, because it starts with her, you know, just being this, this bride for sale who gets sold off to these foreign people in this foreign land. Yeah. And then she eventually learns to lead them, which then she transitions that into freeing all of the slaves in Slaver's Bay. Mm-hmm. And then now, even in these couple of exchanges, you can see that she still thinks, you know, she's more confident now. She's not Daenerys Targaryen. She's you know, Daenerys, Stormborn, titles, 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 titles. (laughs) And it's very confident. I think she's too confident for her position. Yep. But Well, she doesn't have anything to back it up. Or maybe she does, but it's not not always there at the ready. Yeah, well, the thing that's backing her up is currently flying around the desert. Yeah. And the other two are locked up, but maybe they're eating again. Yeah, so who knows? So... Speaking of that's a good transition, uh, we, we spent a lot of time. So, so we go to a Marine, and I'm going to – so we see Varys, who is one of my favorite characters in the entire series. And he shows us here that just because he's not in Westeros doesn't mean that he's not still the spider. Yes. This was my 
favorite, one of my favorite Varus moments of the entire series. I agree. And, you know, we see him really kind of play this girl. And so I was watching this as I always do with, with Kate, and I'll, I'll probably say this in every episode. <laughs> and she was a little confused at who this woman was who he was talking to. And for mm-hmm. those of y'all who don't remember, she was the prostitute who would sing to the Dothraki. You know, obviously, they can't um, engage in other pleasures, so they have to find comfort some way. And so mm-hmm. she was offering those services to them. And eventually we see that she teams up with the Sons of the Harpy. And I'm just curious at how Varys finds out who she is. Yeah, I'm not quite sure. Um, and I, I don't think we'll ever know. But no. I loved that we saw Varys, like, in his element. You know, yeah, he smuggled out Tyrion. He's done thousands of other things. But we've never, in my, I don't think we've ever seen him, like, make a deal. No. I mean, this was it, awesome. That, that was great. And, and, and him and Littlefinger are kind of two of the same types of people. I just think that Varys does it better, really and truly. Well, I think he's smarter, and I do think that his motives are, they're, they're less selfish, really. Um, Varys yeah. is a believer in the bigger picture, but he will, but he does believe in himself that he plays a role in executing, you know, whatever the steps are to get to the goal. Exactly. Littlefinger's motivations also, are different. Yeah, well, he wants to, to, I don't know what kind of power he wants, but he obviously wants more than what he has. And this scene goes to show us that information really can be the best weapon if you use it right and if you use it on the right people. We've seen this kind of information or knowledge is power. There's, there's this big episode or scene mm-hmm. uh, from season three, I believe, with Littlefinger and Cersei. And it's this whole, is information the best power or is power you know, the most influential thing? But, but here we really see that if you have the right person, the right setting, and you know the right things to say to them, then you can do anything. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, you know, he pays, basically pays a bribe, but he's got an escape plan for this chick and says, you know, we can give you a better life, but you got to point us in the right direction. Exactly. It's kind of one of those, oh, help me help you type things. Hey, I would have taken the deal. Get out of Marine, go Absolutely. to Pentos. I mean, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so then we move on to Tyrion, Grey Worm, and Masinde. And Grey Worm and Masinde are another pair that I really hate. I don't know why. I don't know if it's because it feels forced on us yeah. or whatnot. But it's a little... Actually uh, kind of a pr- sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, I was going to say, I just really kind of actually appreciated this scene with them and Tyrion because it shows that while Tyrion knows people or he thinks he knows people, he only knows the people of Westeros. And him coming to this new culture with these new people and have these new norms, it it shows that he can't relate to people as good as he thinks he can or as he used to in Westeros. Yeah. 
Well, they come from very different backgrounds. I think this is building upon the thing that Varys started about, you know, you act like you own the street you walk on, even though you know things. You walk like a rich person. Yeah. You know, like, even though you drink and know things, uh, you don't know everything. And, you know, to be fair, Tyrion's trying. You know, what, is he, what else is he going to do? He can't go anywhere else. This is where he's at. He's got to make it uh, worth his while, so to speak. Um, to comment on the whole thing, I agree with you about their relationship. I do feel like that it, it had a better coalescence in the previous seasons than it's currently right now. Now they're just kind of like yep. wounded birds. Missande doesn't know what she's supposed to do. Grey Worm's still a little injured. But they feel like a Boy Meets World episode to me. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's exactly. just on and on and on. Um, and, you know, they're never going to end up together, but they always think about it kind of a thing. But I want to echo something mm-hmm. you said earlier in the episode that Tyrion touches on here, and he's talking about conversations. You mentioned, you know, Ned and the Arthur Dane fight. And that the winners tell history. And Tyrion here says, you know, most of history comes from great conversations. You know, there are books and books, but they've got to start somewhere. You know, you've got to have content for that. So I really liked that, that, uh, that parallel. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. And so I really don't have anything else for Marine. It was, it was kind of a, a little bit of a progression for that storyline to not let us forget about it. And that's how they kind of set up that whole area, that whole storyline for this season. And then we move on to King's Landing with Kyburn kind of taking Varys's little mm-hmm. birds or his spies under his wing. Yeah, I thought this was a cool scene. Um, did you catch that he probably disposed of that, those kids' father? Oh, yeah, he do got axed. Oh, yeah, he's done. Dad's not coming home. He, I, he was nice, though. I liked him. Yeah, uh, exactly. But here's some prunes. <laughs> so tell me everything. So, yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and, and I guess, you know, it's... And everybody makes jokes about Varys liking, you know, children and little boys. Yeah. But at the end of the day, you know, he... He has the candy, like a you know typical stereotype would be, mm-hmm. but he doesn't want anything like that from him. He wants their secrets, which I guess is just as perverted because he's abusing children, maybe not in a physical way, but definitely in a mental way. Oh, yeah, they don't understand what they're party to. Yeah, and so as I mentioned earlier, a lot of book readers were really kind of upset about this scene as well. Because Varys in the books is a much more complex and multi-layered character than he is in the show. And, by what, I'm, and what I mean by that is he's a lot more ruthless in the books. There's parts where he cuts out kids' tongues so they can't tell any of their secrets except to him. Uh, they, have, they have a code that they, mm-hmm. they exchange information through. And then it's believed that whenever they get to a certain age where he can't bribe them with candy and small things that he can easily get, then he kills them, essentially. And so that part is lost in the show. But I'm okay with that, I guess, just because I like the way they're presenting Varys in this. He does everything for the good of the realm. And I, I think we all want to... We're all on the same team as, as wanting something different in Westeros, and 
he's getting us there. Yeah. So I'm okay with it. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, he is a complex character. Yeah, I do, I do think we're getting uh, some of his complexity shown to us in different ways. But I do still feel like we're achieving the end goal with Varys, which is his mission, but also kind of uh, how he comes off to the general public. You know what I mean? Like the people that he interacts with daily. Think about it, though. Yeah. Varys of, you know, seasons one, two, and three was way more conniving than I think anybody realized. But he also was a, uh, you know, he would worry about what was getting in his way. And he didn't, he didn't mm-hmm. stop at the opportunity to screw someone's path. Oh, no. No, he did not. And so after we see Kyburn talking to, to all the little birds, we then go on to the small council chambers, <laughs> where probably my favorite C-list character in the entire Game of Thrones series shows up, the Queen of Thorns. Yeah. And so they're talking about these matters, and Lady Olenna, I think, goes out of her way to talk about the Queen. And whenever she, she talks about the Queen, she's talking about Marjorie, but Cersei believes that she's talking about her, and then she just puts her down in her place. Just like, you know, oh, we're wham. Talking about the, we're talking about the actual Queen, not you. I was waiting for the shame nun to just, like, show up from around the corner and be like, shame, we're not talking about you. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> I'd have been okay with that. So I, uh, I'm going to totally contradict myself. I loved the scene, and I hated the scene all at the same time. You know, in a previous episode, I mentioned the small council and that I was yeah. like, well, where the heck is everybody? You know, we hadn't seen Kevin. You know, there's nothing going on, no governing. We've got people all over the place and things to worry about. Um, but let me yeah. elaborate real quick. I love the scene because pluses, uh, Lady Olena for sure. Kevin not giving a, a crap about Cersei, um, which I kind of appreciated. And just Mace Tyrell, like that guy can't get it together. And I just think it's funny. It continues to be a caricature. But the reason I didn't like it is Jamie and Cersei are now whiny. And I, I, even though they, they probably should be acting this way because they're, uh, they don't really know how else to react. They're on their own now. I find it to be very just unpleasant to watch. Yeah, and the thing is, is that they're unpleasant together, which makes it even that much worse. Yes, because everything we've been led to believe at this point was that Jamie was breaking away, now he's meandering back, and I don't know what his motivation is, honestly. I really don't. Yeah, and and, and so one thing we see on this, too, which is pretty interesting, is that Pycelle is no longer on Team Cersei. No. And I, I think this goes to show that he, he's kind of just kind of goes with the wind and is going to be at whatever being he can get the most out of, that's who he is going to support at that one time. Yep. To where he even says, oh, well, you know, uh, Sir Gerald Hightower was on the, the council whenever uh, Jamie asked about the mm-hmm. Kingsguard, who usually gets a seat on the small council. He was like, well... Uh, 
the Mad King had Sir Hightower on the small council, but that was the Mad King, and so Sir Robert thought differently. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's like, dude, shut up. I and know, that I'm guy aggravates for, me. For, I'm about ready for his storyline to, to progress a little bit. Yep. And so, and, and that's a very good transition into a progressive storyline, or one that needs to happen, is Tommen and the High Sparrow. Whoa. I mean, yeah. With, with all the good that comes with Thrones, there's also just a lot of bad, or maybe not bad, but not great, and that takes uh, away from the good. So we get Tommen and the High Sparrow, and Tommen walks in with his king's guard and looks like he's finally going to take charge. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden has this, like, sit-down father-daughter moment with the High Sparrow. Uh, this was it just, the it, worst thing I've ever experienced. I am so done with the Faith Militant. Yeah. Shout out, fan shout out. Uh, I know, I think we've mentioned her before. A friend of mine, Amy, listened to the episode, uh, our last week's episode, after the show last night, and was like, man, I'm with you on the Faith Militant stuff. Like, it's just not syncing up for me. And so I just have to say again, it's not syncing up, and I don't, I just don't understand what Tommen thinks he has to lose other than Marjorie. Yeah. I mean, it, it makes sense that if something is to go down, if he does try to storm the, the set, that Marjorie is going to be at risk. But at what point do you just let her sit there and not do anything? Yeah, I mean, it's just, it, it's like this impasse that we get that nobody really cares about. Obviously, we want to see something happen. Yeah. But we don't want to see this just stalemate for two seasons because that's all we've gotten so far. No, it's been on and, and there's on. There's been no resolution to it. And like I said before, I trust Dan and Dave on. They know where they're supposed to go. But quit torturing me <laughs> by having to watch with nothing. Like, don't, don't just keep dragging it on because you need more screen time, because you cut out a lot of good stuff from the books, and now you want to end it. Yeah. That, that's kind of my, my two cents. Well, so clearly, you know, we're, this is in, pre, in trailer footage, so preseason footage, everybody. Uh, just, I mean, if you don't want to know, careful for spoilers. But... You know, we haven't gotten to the point yet where Jamie is leading a Tyrell army on the Sept. And we are building to that, but this, this makes me think that something else drastically will happen before that. Because Tommen, for as much as you think he's about to flip the switch on him, he's not, he's, he won't, and I'm not quite sure why. Um, but... God, just the back and forth. And, you know, so this guy, on a quick aside, this guy was the main villain in the Bond movie Tomorrow Never Dies, the guy that plays the High Sparrow. (laughs) And all I can think of is him just, like, typing whatever headlines he wants about Westeros and being like, Faith Militant reigns supreme for the 400th (laughs) day in a row. Like, I'm losing it. I don't know what what to do with this. Yeah, and, and one thing that I've said before 
is that you know Tommen's decision making is different in the show and the books because he is aged up in the show. Mm-hmm. However, if you're going to age him up in the show, then you should make him act like his age. Yeah. And I don't know if I've said this on the podcast before, but if I was getting some consistently from Natalie Dormer <laughs> and suddenly you take that away from me as a 14 to 16-year-old boy and I have an army at my disposal, if you don't think that I would use that <laughs> army, then that is just not logical. I'm with you. If I'm on your small council, I'm signing off yesterday to yeah, go, exactly. a- go after this situation for your, for your, your health and overall well-being. Exactly. So, and uh, looking at somebody whose health and well-being kind of takes a step in the right direction this, this episode, we get Arya. Yes. And it opens up with her just still getting mauled, essentially, by the wave. And I think that this was the right time for her to get her sight back because I would have not liked to see another episode or another episode and a half of her just getting staffed in the face. I mean, this is just, you know, beat down, beat down. I feel like she's like the vicious version of Mr. Miyagi. Like, there is no (laughs) wax on, wax off. I'm going to whack you in the face and you're going to bleed again. I mean, by the end of it, Arya has more cuts and bruises than the mountain, uh, who was poisoned by <laughs> Oberyn. Co- yeah, and, and Jon Snow. And Jon Snow combined. Yes. Um, but I'm waiting for, this is what, like the third or fourth time we've seen this. And, you know, Arya finally lands a hit in and kind of, you know, has some redemption. But I'm waiting for episode four, or no, episode five, the waif strikes back. Because yeah. that girl return. Yes. Like that girl does not want Arya to succeed. And I don't know if it's actually like her intent is I don't want you to succeed and join us, or I really just have to be this much of an a-hole. Yeah. And I know a lot of people have been upset that Arya hasn't gotten more screen time, but I'm okay with it just because right now with our story, there's not a lot that we have left to see. No, there's not a lot to I do. Mean, like I said, so people were complaining about this in, on, on the interwebs, which I love to read. And my, my thinking is, is that so, so you want to watch this girl just consistently get beat up. The seven or eight minutes of screen time we've got from her this season has been plenty. Mm-hmm. I feel like I know exactly where she is and exactly where she's setting up to go. But I don't want to see any more of that. Or I, I, I didn't want to. Now I'm ready to kind of see her next progression, which I'm assuming we're going to get in episode four. Yeah. So she puts her full faith and trust in whoever is wearing the Jock and Hagar face. <laughs> and, uh, you know, she gets that redemption a little bit with the wave fighting back and then gets her sight back. Yep, and so I'm excited to see where she goes. I hope we get some faceless man ninja assassin coming up in the next couple of episodes. Yeah, I'm hoping so because I think early winds of winter, like she's training, you know, to like take somebody out or something like that. She's furthering her training, so I hope we get to see that. Um, yeah. Question and, for and you. I think they're going to go with. Yeah. <laughs> I said no. I was just going to say I think they're going to go with that storyline 
throughout the end of this season for, from casting news. And I'm not going to spoil anything, but to just if you want to know more, you can look at Arya's Winds of Winter chapter yep. that are out on uh, Wikipedia. You can look at them. Yeah, and my last thing about this is, do you think she's really bought in that she's not Arya? No. I don't I either. Don't, I, I think I think that she, too much stuff has happened to her, mm-hmm. to her to just forget about it. Yeah. And I know everyone says, oh, forgive and forget, but not for, mm-hmm. for this girl who has had her life completely torn apart. I, I don't see that happening, and I hope it doesn't happen. I think it's awesome if she learns to be this badass assassin and goes and kills some people for the faceless men along the way. That's great. But if she doesn't start taking names off of her hit list, I, I won't be yeah. happy with how that ends. Well, I'm with you, and this is where I'm going with this. Like, I don't understand how Arya is on like a sustainable path like to being relevant in the story. And yeah. she is a you know she is a crowd pleaser in most of her work thus far. You know she's continued to get stronger. Um, she knows what she's after, and she felt like she had a purpose. But like in my opinion, even though Jockin was a friend and helped her, I think she was blinded by the sheer power of it all, and that she's yeah. just using this as a way to accomplish the list, which is something you've kind of alluded to, you know, like she's got people in the back of her mind that she wants to be done with. Um, So, no, I don't quite buy it. She put that sword in the rock for a reason. But I don't know how you make a clean clean break from these guys. Um, Well, we see in the trailers Arya running through the streets Mm -hmm. of Bravos. And so I'm not sure if that's her trying to escape the faceless men and kind of going out on her own thing. I hope that's how it is. But I think she is going to eventually deviate from them and go on to achieve bigger and better things. Yeah, I, I sure I hope, hope so. so yeah, I sure hope so. Um, one, one last thing I want to say about Arya. She, in my opinion, knows the least about where her siblings stand you know what I mean? Like, she has been so disconnected from any kind of information. Other yeah. than, you know, we ran into Brienne, and we all know how that went. Mm-hmm. So, you know, she's kind of in this different place. She probably feels like she has less to lose, which is partly, I think, the reason she had to go to Bravos. Like, she didn't have anywhere else to go. And she was going to learn something in the process. Um, but, yeah, I'm not convinced this is going to help her uh, finish her goals if she stays with them. Yeah, I, I agree. And so then we move on to Winterfell with, I, I think, who may be one of my new favorite characters in the show, Lord Umber. Lord Umber. Who is just, who is just showing no mercy, no loyalty to Ramsay, and I absolutely love it. Oh, thought it was great. Glad he stood up to him. And so, with this, there's a couple questions that arise between this dialogue with Ramsay and Lord Umber. And one of the main things that stuck out to me was how did he know that Roos, that, that Ramsay killed Roos? Because he wasn't buying this whole, oh, well, he was poisoned by one of our enemies for a second. No, not he at all. He didn't even blink at that. 
Yeah. And so I'm hoping that this is some grand northern conspiracy stuff kind of getting in the works. And if y'all haven't heard of this yet and you would like to hear about it, it's a, this great idea, kind of like the North remembers and all of the houses are working to try and overtake the Boltons, which may or may not be happening in the show. This is all just a theory. Yeah. Uh, you can read about it on Reddit, and it's a really good read. But, but so, so I think this shows that there was some kind of communication between either the Maester or Lord Karstark about what happened to Roos, because those were the only three people who were in the room when it happened. That's true. That's true. I mean, maybe he's not buying it just because he knows how Ramsey is. I mean, if you're the family in charge, um, I feel like people know who and who you are and what you're about. Um, I thought Lord Umber was hilarious in that he really didn't give a crap about Ramsey or any of it, other than we should unite because selfishly, I don't want my family to die either, so it's probably in our best interest to just kind of bro this one out for now. Um, I'd be curious to see if they are setting us up for the, uh, the big northern conspiracy situation. Um, we do know that we're going to get some kind of large battle uh, later on. Um, but, yeah, shout out to Umber here just for standing up. I'm still, if he's playing Ramsey, he's doing a good job, but I'm still trying to figure out Karstark's motivation other than his father got killed by Rob. Um, yeah. And maybe that's just it, and they want some kind of seat at the table. Which is a, I mean, that, that's a legitimate reason to be pissed at the Starks, I think. It, I, I agree, maybe Rob didn't handle it the right way, so to speak. It's one of the, you know, one of those times he just didn't want to listen to anybody. He wanted to make the decision. Um, but in the end, even though the car Starks are mad, there are a lot of families that would still do anything for a Stark. That's just how they are. Absolutely. The North, in my opinion, is one of the most tight-knit kind of communities because the Starks, uh, and I think how they did things. Yeah. I look at the North as kind of like these Boston neighborhoods where it's kind of like, you know, my, my family, you know, it's, it's us against the world type thing. Yeah. And, you know, they're very tight-knit. They're very tight-knit in their communities, and they don't take to outsiders very well. Mm-hmm. And in this case, the Boltons really are outsiders. Yeah. They are. I mean, they did, because Umber points this out. About, you know, like, how your father, you know, dealt with Rob. You know, like, we're supposed to just deal with that kind of a thing. Yeah, exactly. So, I don't know. I do, maybe there's something up. And I'm sure there is. And so, he obviously has a gift, and, and he gives him Rickon. Yeah. And so, one of the big, big things about this is, is that if the Grand Northern Conspiracy is in place, and... All of the houses are trying to overthrow the Boltons and put a Stark back in Winterfell. Why in the world would you give them the last real Stark who could do anything? It's I mean, a gamble. That part kind of throws... Yeah, and so he obviously has Asha there to protect him, but against Ramsay, I mean, what can she really do? Yeah, now, yeah. she's, she's kind of crafty. As we've seen. But yeah, I think she's she kind of out of her element here. A little bit. 
But, yeah. you know, maybe she's going to treat it like a Theon and his men situation and try to take advantage. But, yeah, I mean, why give up your only tool, you know, to restoring the North to unification uh, with, a de- with decent leadership? Um, but, man, hate to see Shaggy Dog go. Good Lord. That's a poor one out for Shaggy Dog. And, and I've actually seen, you know, everybody thinks there's a conspiracy now in something or that everything may not be what it seemed. And so people were even analyzing that, oh, that wasn't Shaggy Dog because the head wasn't big enough <laughs> to be a dire wolf. And at some point I'm like, man, you're looking for a needle in a haystack if you think that that's not Rickon's dire wolf. Well, that's the thing. Dan and Dave, in my opinion, never do cheesy things like that. Because it's hard to... Yeah. You know, they, they go for the easiest explanation within the parameters. You know, there's a lot of things that have to be taken into consideration. Uh, I think that was him, well, but whatever. I, I totally agree. And, and I think that in this world, while it is a fantasy world, everybody is going to nitpick... And because it has such a large following, people are going to nitpick and try to debunk every little thing that they do. And eventually, at some point, you're just going to have to take logical leaps or take it for face value and not try to read into everything because at the end of the day, it is what it is. Well, yeah, and it'll drive you mad. Absolutely. And, I mean, I've seen all these crackpot theories, and I wish people would stop making them, that make no sense Oh, yeah, so we've all read them. To take, to, to take everything at face value and just go with it, essentially. Yeah. So then we move on to Castle Black, which was awesome because we see John, it opens up him, and he, he's. We kind of see the old Jon Snow here where he's really contemplating what he needs to do. He knows that he's going to have to execute these people who stabbed him and I, I think he truly wants to but he, he's contemplating it and then we see him kind of you know he who passes the judgment must swing the sword mm-hmm. so I, we see a lot of old Jon Snow in this yeah this was a, a, I thought this was a powerful scene definitely some fan satisfaction with how this all ended up um, but yeah you know everybody's strung up and, you know, they go through the last words. Uh, I thought these were interesting, what everybody said or did not say, because Ollie did not open his smug little mouth. Uh, no. But, um, Matt, you talked about this, um, I think, in the first episode when we were talking about the standoff with John's body. But John and Alistair truly believed what they individually were doing was the right thing. And they were willing to stop at nothing to get there. Yeah, I mean, and so it's nobody is surprised that Alistair doesn't have any love lost for John. Mm-hmm. And nobody's equally surprised that John has no love lost for Sir Alistair. But the end of this scene does show that Sir Alistair Thorne has the balls of a mountain lion <laughs> because he's sitting there looking death in the eye he knows he's gonna die and and he still stays true he calls him lord commander and he says you know i had a choice to betray you or betray the night's watch and, and he truly believes that he did the right thing yep which we obviously all disagree 
Sure. And he goes on to say, you know, I fought, I lost, and now I rest. And it's kind of like, man, I, I guess if you're going to go out, go out like a champ. Yep. And I'm glad to see that he is no longer there. But, you know, it, it's kind of like th- that he's so stuck in his ways. Yeah, you were never going to convince bad. him. Yeah, you almost feel bad for him because he, he was like, you know, you'll take the wildlings here over my dead body. And it eventually turned into be that. Yeah. And so, so you know, I was, this was a, a very good ending to a good character of Alistair Thorne, I thought. Yeah, he, you know, he was, he was very steadfast in his convictions. Um, he was going to stop at nothing to hold up the oath that he thought he was adhering to. Um, and, yeah, I agree with and you. I, he tried to go for that respect and dignity piece, even in this, you know, situation. But don't you find it kind of crazy that he is the main antagonist of everybody's favorite protagonist, and we're sitting here defending his actions? Yep. They do this every <laughs> and, time. And talking about his character. I know. Every time. They got, my pre- they got my mind in a pretzel. So then we move on to Ollie. Oh, Ollie. Had it coming. Good riddance. This absolutely okay. So I'm gonna. I'm not walking it back. I'm just telling you how I feel now. So I talked about Ali before, and that his motivations. You know, like he hadn't known these people that long. He is very young. He lost his parents in a very traumatic situation, and no one can ignore that. But the fact that he did not say anything spoke volumes to me about what kind of person he was or had become. And I just didn't have any tolerance for it. He, I'm glad he's gone, and I thought it was a very uh, interesting way to send him off. Good riddance. <laughs> I have no desire to see any more of him. I'm glad we're to be done. But the thing with him is, is that, you know, I, I like to think that John had a lot of high hopes for Ollie, mm-hmm. and he was just a disappointment. And I'll tell this to anybody. You know, my biggest fear, like, when I eventually become a parent, is to be a really good parent and still have a shitty kid. (laughs) And I think that just at the end of the day, Ollie's just a shitty kid. Yeah. From the get-go. From the get-go. And so at the very end, and we were talking about this just before we started recording, so John executes these people. We we see them hanging and, and hear all the very graphic noises that they make yeah and then he's just like all right well i'm done ed good luck to you you can wear the coat you can burn the coat don't really care but i'm leaving i have a lot of thoughts about this very short period of time in the episode one i think we all want to hear them be quiet one I didn't like how the exchange with Ed went down. I do not think it was a dick move, but I don't feel like it was... I don't know. I don't feel like it came across correctly. Clearly, John is turning his back on the organization that turned its back on him. And I have no problem with that. 
but how he's coming, how this is coming to pass, I disagree with a little. But I get, uh, I'm known to have a little bit of a temper at times. We all kind of do, but it just depends on the situation. And so I think if I had just been stabbed by four people and we just hung them, uh, and now I'm back, yeah, I'd probably still feel a little angry. But I don't know. I thought this was a little slight to Ed, who you said earlier has been with him for a while and is the only one really left. Yeah, um, and I can see that. It's kind of like, oh, here's this big mess that I've made. Good luck trying to clean it up. I want nothing to do with it. Yeah. And, and I understand that. And, but, but also, I think from us watching the show and being, you know, wanting to know more about Jon Snow, nobody would be satisfied if he gets killed by the Night's Watch and is technically released by his oaths mm-hmm. or breaks his oaths as he's the, the episode title. I don't think anybody would have been okay with him being like, okay, well, now I'm back to the Night's Watch. Let me spend the next you know, episodes here yep. just trying to rebuild all this stuff. Nobody would have been okay with that. And so I'm assuming that's why Dan and Dave did it, and I hope that's their reasoning behind it. Yeah. And I hope they have great things. I think we're going to get the Battle of the Bastards coming up yeah. at the end of the season. Well, I, I do think they're trying to move us, you know, forward now. You know, we've gone through the most dramatic part in John's story to date. And yeah. he's still dealing with being back and what that means and what he's supposed to be doing next. He is still trying to figure that out. He has not figured it out. Um, but instead of, like, telling Ed, deal with it, I wish he would have been like, I'm leaving, you should consider it kind of a thing and yeah i agree but it was a very huge and i did like it a big drop the mic moment when he's like you know my watch has ended i'm getting out of here yeah i agree it's so i was kind of equating this to being like you know you're the president and i'm the vice president (laughs) and some bad stuff happens and then you're like all right matt good luck (laughs) I'm leaving, you know, without telling me first, like at this big public press conference. I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't do it that way. way. Yeah. (laughs) But it's like, oh, by the way, Matt's going to take care of everything now. I'm leaving. See y'all never. Yeah, Godspeed. I'm on the helicopter. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. And so, you know, I'm really excited to see what they give us next next week. Um, We can do a a preview podcast. We'll, We'll probably do one about the... Uh, episode four preview just to kind of give y'all some insight into what's going to happen and uh the ball keeps on rolling you know unfortunately we're getting closer and closer to the end and i think there are huge things on the horizon for us yep totally agree with you uh still we, we still got a lot of things to see uh in this season uh just three episodes in but man it does feel like it's going quick um, but we're learning a lot each time. They're filling in some gaps for us, creating some new, uh, you know, paths for characters. Uh, but yeah, I'm I'm very excited. I'm I will say that the first three episodes of this season have not disappointed. I think we've got a substantial amount of material in just under like three hours of time. Um, mm-hmm. And even though the first episode was a little slow to start and episode three is just trying to keep moving the ball forward, which you obviously have to do in a linear story, um, 
there, there's been a lot in just three episodes. And so I do kind of understand more now where Dan and Dave were saying, we don't think there was a weak episode. Nope. And, you know, and I agree with them. And so, yeah, and, and I'm always excited. I feel like the time between Sundays at 8 o'clock are getting just longer and longer, <laughs> having to wait to see what happens next. Well, yeah, and, you know, we spend so much time just pouring over it. You know, what's going to happen next? What's going to happen next? Yep. And so, uh, like I said, all of our listeners, thank you so much for tuning in to this episode. Uh, if you have any questions, if you have any feedback for us, we'd love to hear it. Um, we'd also like to thank our sponsor, the Westeros Chicken Company, the official poultry of Sir Sandor Clegane. He loves it. But yeah, just to echo what Matt said, thanks everybody for tuning in. Um, we've really got a great group of people that have uh, you know stuck with us and are always providing some feedback and comments. And you know we've picked up a couple new people along the way. But if there's anything you'd like to see or something you want us to touch on, please feel free to reach out. You can find us on Twitter at District Dogma. Um, if you didn't find us on Sound SoundCloud, you can find us there. Um, and the rest of the socials will be up here in short order. Uh, but that's it for here. Uh, that's it for us here, excuse me, at the Wardens of Westeros podcast. And we'll see you guys next time. As we always say. And as the night is dark. and Hold on. Let's tears. redo the end. Okay. Uh, I'm going to start with the Twitter thing. And I think we can edit that in uh, decently. No, you, you're good. Just roll in from the night is dark before here. Okay. And as we always say, the night is dark. The night is dark. And full of terrors.